Hey, I'm Andy. I'm Andy. And you're listening to the HMO Podcast. Over 10 years ago, I set myself the challenge of building my own property portfolio. And what began as a short-term investment plan soon became a long-term commitment to change the way young people live together. I've now built several successful businesses. I've raised millions of pounds of investment and I've managed thousands of tenants. Join me and some very special guests to discover the tips, tricks and hacks, the ups and the downs, the best practice and everything else you need to know to start, scale and systemize your very own HMO portfolio. Now. In today's episode, I need to have a bit of a rant. It's been a while since I've ranted on the show, but I need to get something off my chest. I need to get it out of the system. I need to purge this. And I want to tell you all about it because, well, not just because I want to rant to you, but because I think you're actually going to find this quite useful and quite valuable. This isn't the first time. This issue that I'm about to share with you isn't the first time it's happened to me. And I suspect it won't be the last. If you're buying HMOs, if you're buying a lot of HMOs, if you're planning on buying HMOs well into the future, then I suspect you're going to have to deal with this at some point. So what are we ranting about today? Well, this is an issue that I've recently had with a HMO license. It's really got my back up. It's more specifically the team who are responsible for inspecting and then issuing the license. And it really boils down to knowing what's required to meet amenity standards, to meet licensing standards and practices. So anyway, I'm going to reveal all in today's show. So if you want to know exactly what I'm ranting about, if you want to hopefully kind of learn from this and be better armed to deal with it, if and when it crops up in your own business, then make sure you stick around. Please sit back, relax and enjoy today's episode of the HMO podcast. Hey guys, it's Andy here. We're going to be getting back to the podcast in just a moment. But before we do, I want to tell you very quickly about the HMO Roadmap. Now, if you're serious about replacing your income, or perhaps you've already got a HMO portfolio that you want to scale up, then the HMO Roadmap really is your one-stop shop. Inside the Roadmap, you'll find a full 60-lesson course delivered by me, teaching you how to find more deals, how to fund more deals and raise private finance, how to refurbish great properties, how to fill them with great tenants that stay for longer, and how to manage your properties and tenants for the future. We've also We've got guest workshops added every single month. We've got new videos added every single week about all sorts of topics. We've got downloadable resources, cheat sheets and swipe files to help you. We've got case studies from guests and community members who are doing incredible projects that you can learn from. And we've also built an application just for you that allows you to appraise and evaluate your deals, stack them side by side and track the key metrics that are most important to you. To find out more, head to the hmoroadmap.co.uk now and come and join our incredible community of HMO property investors. All right, welcome back to today's show. So we're ranting. I'm having a bit of a rant. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate you being a punch bag for the next 15 or 20 minutes or so. I promise I'm not going to try and bore you. I promise I'm not just going to rant at you for the sake of ranting. I promise I am going to sort of shoehorn in (laughs) some sort of learning tool. I think there's something that you should be able to take away from today's episode. But hey, yeah, let me know at the end of today's episode whether or not it was useful. And uh, let me know whether or not you think that this is worth ranting about. It does frustrate me when I get frustrated myself. I know there's better things to spend my time and energy on than than kind of getting upset and frustrated and ranting at like the HMO license team. But anyway, stick with me because I'm pretty sure you're going to side with me on this one. So let me set the scene of this ranty episode. 
I finished a project back in December. It's a fantastic six bed. You will probably seen that I shared pictures of it. It was the one with the garage conversion, two floors, detached garage bedrooms, so five bedrooms in the main house on two floors, cohesive tenancy, so sort of six students on one tenancy. And it's a really very kind of simple standard floor plan format. As far as things like fire escapes are concerned, it's very, very simple. So in this particular authority, the kind of the licensing standards, the amenity standards are pretty generous, generally speaking, room sizes, amount of kitchen, cupboard space, things like that. No issues whatsoever. And the license, they came around a couple of months ago and they did the license inspection after I finished everything off. And I always expect there are going to be one or two bits. Like, for example, we just hadn't received the order of the thumb turn locks. They'd been ordered for several doors and they needed fitting. Not a big deal. Obviously, they're going to flag that and they're just going to say, you know, just let us know when they arrive and when you fit them. And problem. I think there was a TRV missing from one of the radiators that had obviously sort of got got lost or damaged during the refurb and they picked up on that. And, And that was kind of pretty much it. They're the usual bits and pieces I expect to see and find. If you've been following me on social media, you'll know that on a number of occasions, I've shared some of the really ridiculous things that inspectors have said and proposed to me at inspections. I remember there was once a lady, we went out the back, shared access at the rear of a property, tiny rear yard, uneven ground. It's been that way, I suspect, since the house was built. So we must be talking 150 years. And she sort of jammed her foot up into a crack that must have been no more than about five or six mil. And was sort of telling me that it was a trip hazard and that we have to level the whole of the backyard. And bear in mind, it was a shared yard with the the neighbouring property. And I've had to deal with ridiculous things like that, but usually they're pretty easy to get over when you sort of, you make it pretty clear that they are being ridiculous. You make it clear that you're prepared to challenge it and you go to some, maybe a head of department. So that sort of stuff has happened to me before. And there are also things that are reasonable of the council to ask, but if you've got a team who are prepared to work with you, you can also get around them. So a good example is in Sheffield, we live on a lot of hills. It's quite steep here. And a lot of the houses are built into the hills, which means out of the front of a lot of the houses are steps. And sometimes they're just two or three, sometimes they're six, seven or eight steps. And I can understand a lot of steps. There's more of a requirement to have something like handrail, balustrade. But with just one or two steps, I don't think you really need a handrail. Particularly when you take into consideration that most of our students are between the age of 18 and 30. They're generally fit, able-bodied. It's not disabled access anyway. And so usually you can have conversations with the council about this sort of thing. And and I found that actually they can be sensible and practical. And sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. But what really, (laughs) I don't even want to say it, what really grinds my gears is when the guidance, mandatory guidance, so guidance that sort of dictates mandatory guidelines is misinterpreted. And no more so is this misinterpreted than in the LaCour's guidance. Now, I know that sort of half of our listeners, about 5,000 of you will have just switched off completely because I've said the word LaCour's and I totally get it. I'm with you. Trust me, I am with you. But hear me out. LaCour's is a complicated document. It's not a perfect solution. It's not a silver bullet. And really, most people, including most license inspectors and fire risk assessors and the fire services themselves, they're kind of pragmatic about this. And it's not perfect. Things are different. Every property is a little bit different. So you kind of have to pick the best scenario and you have to sort of go with that guidance. Now, LaCour's 
tries its best to sort of separate what you need in, for example, a five-bed cohesive living program on two floors against, go to the opposite end of the spectrum, like a a large HMO, like seven-bed plus over more than four floors with a non-cohesive group, perhaps even vulnerable adults. Understandably, the health and safety requirements and therefore the fire safety requirements are, are quite different there. And I get that, and that's absolutely fine. And that's why there are some fairly dramatic differences, you know, as you sort of step up in terms of the number of tenants, the type of tenants, the number of floors that you have. And as far as I'm concerned, and look, I'm happy to be correct, and I suppose I'm sticking my neck out a little bit here, but I've been doing this for a long, long time. I've got a lot of HMO licenses in a lot of different places. So as far as I've always been led to believe and have been approved when my licenses have come up for renewal and things have been inspected, When you've got five tenants in a property, they're on a cohesive sort of tenancy arrangement, so students, for example, and they're on two floors, the requirement is to have mains wired interlinked smoke alarms or a fire detection system, and they can be placed in the communal areas. So typically what you would need is you'd need a heat detector in the kitchen. You'd then need smoke detectors in the communal areas. So for example, above the hallway, above the landing upstairs. And depending on the configuration of the floor plan, if you've got a corridor that extends down and round the side, then you might need another smoke detector and the sensible practice. They need to be placed within a certain distance away from the wall. But fundamentally, that's the requirement. Five or six beds, one tenancy on two floors. It needs a mains wide interlinked smoke system. So that's not a panelled system. And you and the guidance in the cause is those smoke alarms don't need to be in the bedrooms. The bedrooms are not considered risk rooms. So this particular HMO, that's exactly what we've done. And of course, when you're doing a big refurb, your first fix electrics is all going in as you pl- before you're plastering and decorating and things like that. So to change anything in retrospect, if the council insisted on it, or if you realise you've made a mistake, it is and can be quite an expensive mistake. But I was adamant that that's exactly what we should have done and that is exactly what we have done anyway the day of the license inspection came and the council sent not one but two inspectors around which in itself i found quite funny because it's a job that takes 30 45 minutes i certainly don't think it needs two people and anyway they turned up with the cause book under their arm and you can sort of see where this is going and they did their inspection absolutely fine very polite nice people but clearly didn't know the guidance anywhere near as well as I did. That was certainly my opinion. Anyway, we got to the bedroom doors and they raised a bit of a concern about my fire doors. So the configuration of my fire doors is I've got fire doors, fire frames, and there are intumescent strips in them. Now that, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I've ever been made aware, is the right way to sort of set the doors up when you've got a configuration like we have, five tenants on a joint tenancy on two floors and with the smoke alarms placed on the communal passageways. You see, the council inspectors got a little bit stuck and they seemed to believe that I'd done something wrong. They thought that, first of all, the smoke alarms should be in the bedrooms. And I sort of said, well, actually, that's not the guidance if you do want to check it. And they wanted to go away and check it. And then they said, that the strips, the fire strips weren't right. And it was all a bit confusing and I didn't want to patronise anybody. And I said, like, as far as I'm aware, you know, that is right. We've kind of, that's the way we've always done it. I've got several other HMOs here in the same place, like literally one minute away and they've all got the licences and they're set up exactly the same. 
And anyway, they went away and lo and behold, you know, a week or so later, I got a nice, very pleasant email from them, but with a list of remediations that they wanted me to make. Some of them were the bits I mentioned, the thumb turn locks, a TRV valve on one of the radiators. And then there was this point about the fire system and the fire door arrangement, the setup. And according to the guidance that they had referred to, which was of LaCour's, they wanted me to do one of two things. They wanted me to either put smoke alarms inside the bedrooms or remove, I quote, the fire strips. I sort of had to pause a minute and think. It confused me because it was so bizarre and I was so taken aback by this. And I don't mean to sound arrogant in any way, but I was so confident that what we have done was right. It's the way that we've always done it with these sorts of configurations. And obviously I sort of pushed back and I sort of said, look, are you sure? I don't quite understand. And they pointed out a piece of the sort of the LaCour's guidance and it referred to this particular arrangement and where you've got smoke alarms outside of the bedroom, so you don't have smoke alarms in the bedroom, it's not recommended that you have fire strips. Because fire strips are different to intermittent strips. Fire strips are sort of smoke seals, and sometimes you can get combined intermittent and smoke seals. They are like the furry ones that you see inside the doors or inside the door frames, as opposed to intermittent strips. They look like white plastic strips inside the door frame or inside, kind of routed into the door. And they do two very different things. So intumescent strips, when they get hot, they expand. And when they expand, they create a seal around the door. So the idea is if a fire starts on either side of that door, that intumescent strip at about 120 degrees, it activates, it seals the door and it prevents that fire from jumping. It then gives that door, that entranceway, it's 30 minutes fire resistance. A smoke seal is a little bit different. A smoke seal stops smoke from passing through. Now, that's really important here. And I'm going to try my best to sort of explain this. And, and it isn't the easiest to explain. And that's why, to an extent, I am I do sympathise with the council because it is easy to misinterpret this stuff and misunderstand it. A smoke seal doesn't let smoke pass under the door, whereas an intermittent strip does. So let's say, for example, a fire started in the bedroom. Hopefully there wouldn't be a tenant in there, but let's say a fire started in the bedroom. If there was a smoke alarm in there, that smoke alarm would go off quickly. The best smoke detector is always going to be a human being anyway, assuming they're awake. But if there was a fire in the room and there was a smoke alarm in the room, that smoke detector would go off. Now, in that event, you wouldn't really want the smoke to find its way out of the room, would you? So the requirement in that sort of configuration is that on the door, you have what's called a smoke seal or the brush strips. Those brush strips actually stop the smoke from exiting the room. And then if it's a combined brush strip, there'll still be an intermescent component, which means that if and when that door got to a particular temperature, about 120 degrees, it would activate and it would seal that door and stop the actual fire from spreading. But the smoke would have been prevented from spreading. Where you don't have a fire alarm inside the bedroom, what you want to happen is for the smoke to pass out of the bedroom, under the bedroom door, around the side of the door frame, and that way the smoke can activate the smoke detector on the communal passageway, outside on the landing or on the hallway. That's really, really important. And that's sort of why an intermescent strip is designed in such a way. The intermescent strip will let the smoke pass under, it will then activate the fire alarm and if and when the temperature inside the bedroom or wherever that fire started gets to a certain temperature, 120 degrees, it then activates and then it seals that door. So what the council have done here in this example, the reason they're being difficult is because 
first of all, they don't know the difference between an intermittent strip and a smoke seal. They are fundamentally two very different pieces of equipment. They do very different things. And that dramatically sort of changes the outcome of a fire and and smoke in a house. So it's really important to understand that first and foremost. Secondly, what they don't seem to completely understand and grasp is how the risk is kind of managed within LaCour's and the difference of risks between cohesive and non-cohesive groups the number of floors you've got and things like that. And when you're confusing two different elements, you know, the whole thing can just get very confusing. So I've done my best to sort of try and re-educate them, but it's not my job to re-educate them. My job is actually to put in the right thing and get my license. My job isn't to teach them how to actually inspect. And while I'm amenable, I think I'm a good guy. Actually, they were giving me quite a difficult time. And by the time, you know, we'd exchanged a few emails, it's gone on for a few weeks, and then we got back on the phone. The inspector was actually quite rude with me and he wanted to talk and talk and talk. And when it was my turn to talk, he actually at one point stopped me and said, look, I've listened enough. And I said, actually, we've exchanged three or four emails. I've just listened to you on the phone for five or 10 minutes. You haven't listened to me say anything. So with all due respect, that's not the case, but I think you do need to listen to me. So anyway, where are we at the moment with this? Well, quite frankly, I've pushed back and I've said, I'm not doing what you want me to do because I believe I am right. If you want to refuse my license, you can go ahead and do that, but I'm going to challenge it. And I'm not recommending you do this. You really do need to know your position if you're going to do this. But actually, you know, I've got several other properties in this particular borough and I've got loads of other licenses elsewhere that are set up exactly the same. So I actually want to make sure that we are right and what they're requesting would require a certain amount of money to be spent on the property. And I certainly wouldn't be happy taking intermittent strips off off doors because without that, there is actually no sort of 30-minute fire break. Putting fire alarms into the bedrooms is obviously very, very expensive. I've got six bedrooms in that house. We'll probably be talking about an extra couple of grand to do it. Clearly, where it's not required, I want to avoid doing that. So I did say, look, I'm going to challenge it. They then came back unbelievably and said, okay, Mr. Graham, we've listened to you. We still think it's this, you think it's that, but, and this was bizarre, we're going to grant you the license, but we're just going to make a recommendation that you make these improvements. And I thought that that was even worse. I actually thought, I think you were just admitting you still don't really know what you're talking about, and you're trying to sort of hang anything that might happen in the future and god forbid it did but hopefully it never did on me and i said i mean i'm not prepared to accept that you either sign it off you give me a clean bill of health or you don't and that was sort of how it was left although they've asked if they can come back and reinspect whether they want to have a closer look at the strips and things like that um, and buy themselves a bit more time so that's where we are so we're what now moving towards april still don't have my hmo license even though it was sort of finished and all inspected you know a long time ago as far as i'm concerned it's all absolutely bob on it's fine the tenants are very safe we've got the fire risk assessment we inspect we do our tests and things like that but the council still don't seem to know what the actual guidance is and this is why it frustrates me this has taken up a lot of my time it frustrates me that they have a fairly flagrant disregard for the costs of actually doing some of these things that they're proposing which are really off the back of things that they don't understand. As an investor with a lot of rooms, a lot of fire alarms to potentially consider, this is a really, a really important thing for me. I always want to make sure we're doing everything that we absolutely should be and and where possible sort of doing the very best we possibly can. But there is a line that you've got to draw. We could all go absolute gold standard. We could install 
panelled fire alarm systems in five bed HMOs on two floors because according to Lacours, that's like the best possible system. But actually, in my opinion and experience of running HMOs, they're pretty terrible because they break, they need a lot of maintenance, they need testing every six months. They're very difficult to manage when the alarms are set off accidentally, which when you've got a house of five or six young people, they cook toast, it burns, smoke alarms go off. So these are the sorts of nuances that aren't really considered in Lacours. So I think it's really important that we know exactly what we are required to do as a kind of a minimum, and then we independently are able to make a decision on what's best in our house. And we can do that in combination with a fire risk assessment. That's kind of the purpose of getting one. I've got a six bed on two floors. And I've got a panelled system in there with smoke alarms in every bedroom because the configuration is really weird. It's a big property. You could kind of get lost in there. I've got emergency lighting in there as well. And because that was a decision that me and my fire risk assessor made, it was quite an expensive decision, but it was the right decision for that property above and beyond. So look, guys, I told you this was a bit of a ranty episode. I've ranted for 20 minutes about this now, which has upset me more. But I hope, I hope, I hope there is something to take away from this. I guess, look, what can we learn from this? First and foremost, I think it's important that you as an investor understand this stuff. I think it really is important. This is about being a professional investor. You should know this stuff. So make sure that you do. The guidance is there. Spend some time. I know it's a bit boring, but spend some time reading it. Spend some time getting the right advice. Spend some time with your fire risk assessors. Um, make sure you do get fire risk assessments. This is one of those things that's often overlooked. Not every council makes it mandatory, but you'll often find in the guidelines, it is one of the stipulations you are meant to do it. And if you sort of dive into your insurances, you'll probably find that that is an, sort of an insurance requirement as well. So I would definitely recommend you do this. They do cost a few hundred quid each time. They can be a little bit painful sometimes with some of the detail that they want and sort of policies and stuff like that that they won't just create, but definitely worth doing in my opinion. The third thing is don't trust everyone. Just because somebody is in a, a position of authority doesn't mean that you should just go along with them and do whatever they say. I want to be on the right side of our councils. It's a really important part of our business, but I don't want to be pushed around. I don't want to be made to jump through hoops. I don't want to spend money on things that I don't have to. And I certainly don't want to do things just because someone's telling me to do it if I believe that it's wrong. So sometimes you need to stand up for yourself. Sometimes you need to say, hang on a minute. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I want to look at that closer myself. Don't be afraid of doing that. Please don't go out of your way to make the life of inspectors and the council difficult. It's not likely to end well for you, but don't be pushed around. If you genuinely feel like they are wrong and you are right, if you genuinely feel like they're being unreasonable about something, it's okay to say that. And it is okay to challenge things. I've been doing this long enough. I've done it before and I, I know I'll do it again. So I guess... There are a few things to take away there. And look, if this happens to you and you're confused about it, don't panic and don't just agree to do whatever they're asking you to do. Go and get the right advice. Come and talk about it to us and members in the HMO community. See what we think. Speak to your fire risk assessor. Get somebody else's opinion. In this example I've shared with you, even the fire department were misinterpreting that. So this this wasn't really the sort of case that I wanted to challenge, but felt like I absolutely had to. So there we go, guys. Rant over. I'm sure I'll start to feel a little bit better now. I've sort of expelled this. Thank you for listening. And like I said, hopefully you do find that there's one or two things in there that you can actually use in your own business. And there are some sort of nuances to sort of fire doors and the arrangements there. And hopefully that information about the difference between smoke seals and instrument strips, hopefully that helps you as well. That is it for today's episode. You'll perhaps be pleased to know. 
If you want to come and chat about this, if you want to add to it, if you want to ask any questions about any issues you've got going on like this in your own business, come on over to the HMO community. I'm there. Six and a half thousand members in the community now. It's an amazing place. It's on fire at the minute. The number of incredible conversations happening every day just blows me away. But come and chat about this stuff. That's what we're there for. Of course, if you want to really get into the detail, some of this stuff is there. Head on over to the hmoroadmap.co.uk. If you're building your property business, if you've got issues or you're trying to find solutions to raise finance, fund your next deal, plan your refurbishment. If you want to know how to find great tenants and keep them, if you want to know how to manage your property, all of those lessons and courses are waiting for you inside the HMO roadmap, all delivered by me based on my own 15 years of experience in the industry. Of course, we've got all the expert masterclasses. We've got nearly 45 community case studies there waiting to inspire you with all the juicy numbers and details. Got the deal stacker, tons of downloadable resources and so much more. So if you are leveling up, if you want to take your HMO property business to the next level, whether you're just at the start, maybe you're a veteran, it's the place to be. Go and check it out. And guys, if you've got 30 seconds, I'm not sure this is actually the best episode to ask you, but if you've got 30 seconds to spare and you found today's episode perhaps not enjoyable, maybe more useful than enjoyable, then please, 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 please leave a really quick review of the show. It helps so much more than you could possibly know. It helps me continue to bring great guests on the show and it helps continue to spread the message about all of the good work you guys are doing out there in the HMO community. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget that I'll be right back here in the very same place next week. So please join me then for another installment of the HMO podcast. Mm-hmm.